So we're now somewhere in the middle of this retreat. It's like being in the middle of the ocean. And you know that there's a shore that you left, and presumably there's the new world someplace (laughs) that you'll come to. And in the meantime, it's kind of hard to know where you are. The only thing that you can say about where you are, perhaps, is that you're here, which may be all that one need to say. I remember going to speak with Ajahn Chah in the forest monastery where I practiced, and uh, it was a period where I had a lot of difficulty. I was sick, I thought I had malaria, and there was a lot of noise because they were building a new, new monk's cottage near mine, and they were pounding nails, and building and so forth and then and I went and I said there there's a noise and I feel sick and I feel frustrated and I can't meditate um, I feel you know agitated and it's really difficult to do anything and and uh, I'm just, it's just I can't meditate and he looked at me kind of quizzically he said well why don't you meditate on that <laughs> There is a description that I read at many retreats and will hear of Thomas Merton's visit to Sri Lanka from Asian journals to the monastery, the great monastery at Polonarua, nearly 2,000 years old. And you go to this place and there's these ancient trees and a beautiful green grassy lawn and you take your shoes off because it's a temple even though it's outdoors. (coughs) You leave your shoes on the stone path and you walk a long way under the trees across this beautiful grass and you come to this cliff, which is a stone cliff, a hundred feet high or more. And in the marble, in the rock of this cliff, are carved three or four figures of the Buddha. A long reclining Buddha, a hundred feet long, and then a couple of large seated Buddhas and they're beautiful. Thomas Merton said he found them to be the most compelling pieces of art that he'd ever seen in his travels. And they're extraordinary. The silence of these extraordinary faces, the great smiles, huge yet subtle, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing. Great peace, the peace not of emotional resignation, but of emptiness that has seen through every question without trying to discredit anyone or anything, without refutation, without establishing some other argument. The extraordinary thing about all this is that there is no puzzle, no problem, no mystery. All of life appears in emptiness. Everything is connected in compassion. Thus, it is already clear and complete. I'd like to speak this evening about peace. 
what does it mean to be at peace with oneself or at peace in nature or at peace in our hearts peace and struggle the good fight you know the good fight fighting the good fight to look at peace and perhaps why we are also not at peace perhaps we'd like a peaceful world without war killing without violence without hatred perhaps also we would like to find peace in ourselves in our families with our relations with our friends our communities at work our loved ones but then again perhaps we're not quite so sure as someone said what we seek is endless excitement and perfect peace <laughs> Dear Lord, please give me chastity and continence, right? Says St. Augustine, but not yet. And most of you have heard this, but for the few here who haven't, it's just too much fun not to read at this point. This is the cartoon from Sylvia, where the woman comes to complain, and Sylvia is in the guise of a fortune teller. My husband won't talk about his feelings. And the fortune teller, Sylvia, says, So what's new? <laughs> And then she says, all right, I'll answer. And the woman says, what's happening? She says, I'm going into a trance. My spirit guide is about to speak. By the end of 1989, men will begin talking about their feelings. <laughs> Women all over America will be sorry within minutes. <laughs> So we think we want something or other, but in some ways we're not really sure. What would it mean to find peace? Do we really want it? Peace, freedom. To discover it, I mean, you might as well find it first and see if you want to keep it, because you could always go back, you know. <laughs> to discover it, in the world, in our relations with one another, in our work, there's only one place it can be found, and that is we must find it in ourselves. Or more accurately, we actually have to become it ourselves. In the Gospel story where the apostles get trapped in that sudden and wild storm on the Sea of Galilee, we find a lesson for peacemakers today. When the waves first rose and the boat began to rock, and the apostles worked hard and with hope in order to survive the storm raging around them. But then they lost heart and allowed the storm outside to come inside. It's easy to imagine the apostles as frantic, disconnected, out of control. In their desperation, they waken a peaceful Jesus who questions their faith and calms the storm 
by projecting his inner stillness, his inner harmony, and his inner peace. Sometimes we who seek peace are more like the apostles. We have allowed the suffering around us to become too much a part of us. And often we only worsen the situation by projecting our guilt or fear or despair. Can we not instead become like Jesus and find that still center that nothing will disturb? In that way, we are true peacemakers, people who bring peace wherever we go. So we've had a number of days of sitting and walking and interviews. People come into interviews, and part of our work as teachers is a work of balancing. If people are too tight, we say soften and relax. If they're too relaxed and not present enough, we say sit up straight, bring a little more energy. If they're too much in the future, we say come back to the present, or too much in the past, come back to the present. Some balancing, listening to what's out of balance, directing people back to a balance in the moment. The other big piece of our work is the work of suggesting that people let go. Needless to say, we can't do it for you. Nobody can let go for us. It's quite an interesting thing. There is no one in the world who can let go for you. Isn't that amazing? No great teacher or saint or, or loved person or anything else that can let go for us. But you come in and we recommend it to you. <laughs> now, as people come in and describe their experience, their beautiful experiences, we say let go of those. They're difficult experiences. We recommend letting go of those as well. There's storms, there's thoughts, there's peaceful periods, there's pains in the body, there's the knees in the back and all the deep armor and holding. And then there's expectations and desires and fear, all the ways that we find it difficult to be open. And we suggest, well, be with this too. Be here now with what is. It's a good idea, but it's not so easily done, is it? What makes it so hard to be at rest, to open to what is here? For many people, many of us experience a fear of feeling really deeply, of entering or touching or feeling fully what this life is in a moment. There's a line from Zen Master Dogen where he says, enlightenment or liberation or realization is to be intimate with all things. To be freed is to be intimate with all things. It's an interesting line, isn't that? 
to be intimate with your sorrow. Pain, anger, loss, struggles, desires, pleasures, joys, happiness, rapture. And so a big part of what we do in sitting is to become really intimate with the breath, the body, the feelings that we have moved away from out of our fear. And when we get to do that, when we become a little bit more connected with our bodies, so we're not at a short distance from them, connected with our feelings quite genuinely, and our heart connected with the experiences of the moment, and really become intimate and open to them, things start to become quiet. And then we find that we need to become intimate and open to something even more difficult, which is the quiet itself. It gets quiet, and there's a new level of fear that arises, not just the fear of feeling sad or angry or pain or joy or rapture, but the fear of nothing, the fear of stillness, of letting go, of dissolving, which is really what happens when you get quiet enough. Because most of who we take ourselves to be is created by our stream of reactions and thoughts about ourselves. And so it gets quieter and the fear re-arises. Can I really let go this deeply? If I do, is it safe? This is a very difficult, but also wonderful place in practice to let things really open, dissolve. For many people, it requires practice and a sense of trust and safety that this place, or even more than that, this place or the teachers or the practice more fundamentally that we ourselves can really let go and trust. So what does coming to peace mean? The end of many of the sutras and all of the uh, recitations if you go to an ashram in India of the great Hindu teachings they always end with this phrase, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Shanti is the word for peace in Sanskrit. What does that mean? Where is it to be found? Is peace to be found by leaving the world, going someplace where it's really quiet, escaping? Remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin he was boasting one day in a coffee house or tea house about his travels. He said, I caused a whole band of bloodthirsty Bedouins to run single-handedly. And his friend said, Mullah, how did you do that? He said, oh, it was quite simple. I ran and they ran after me. <laughs> one of the problems about running away 
you may have noticed it here in this monastery, and I assure you, if we could pick this up and move it to Tibet or Nepal or some remote jungle forest or Himal Himalayan site, is that wherever you go, you go along with yourself. <laughs> so your troubles follow. So peace isn't going to work from running away. And anyone who's lived for any long period or short period in a monastic community knows that it's as much of a fire, if not more, than any place else in the world. More so in a certain way, because it's the end of the line. It's the dead end, you know? <laughs> There's nowhere else to go. So that's not peace. Peace is not found in some idealistic way. Ideals and peace are opposites. There's a famous Buddhist teacher written about, described in some of the Buddhist sutras, named Vimla Kirti, who is a bodhisattva, a, a, a great enlightened being. And the wonderful things about this story of Vimla Kirti is that he's the teacher who really demonstrates through his life that peace and liberation are synonymous with being where you are. And so he becomes a layperson rather than a monk to show that you can be peaceful as a layperson. He has a big family, dozens of children, to show that you can do it with dozens of children. <laughs> That's impressive, isn't it? <laughs> He becomes a bartender <laughs> to teach the Dharma to people who are entering the bar. He makes himself sick so that people can come and take care of him and he can give them teachings. He enters every realm of life and in each of those circumstances he brings his joy and his wakefulness and his freedom to that place. If I could communicate something to you all as longtime friends and fellow Dharma students, it would be about the joy of finding liberation or freedom in any realm. It's not about some particular experience. What I hope people can discover is how to live and work and love and relate to one another and be in this human body with its mind and heart and feelings on this earth and be happy and peaceful and free. To do this, we cannot be idealistic. How can we enter any realm and find freedom? One part of this perspective, you might say it's a lifelong project. Or another, perhaps better way to say it, is that it's not in time at all. Time isn't even relevant. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. It's not insight or understanding that matters. Insights are cheap. You've probably had quite a few in your life, even in your sitting career. Isn't it true? It's not that, but it's living. It's living in the unknown, living in the moment, and learning to let go and realize that we don't own it, we don't possess it, we don't control it.
Remember the story about the Buddha being uh, visited by a man who said, uh, you're a Buddha, right? And the Buddha said, yeah, that's me. That's correct. And he said, good, I have some questions for you now that I've found you. Um, I want to know what happens when you die. The Buddha said, well, why do you want to know that? Being a good teacher, he asked some questions back. The man said, well, because then I'll know how to live my life if I know where it's going. The Buddha said, well, suppose, my friend, that you have many lives, that there's life after life after life. How would you live your life if that were true, if I told you that? He said, well, I'd want to be kind to other people because it feels very good to me now and they'd appreciate it and it sows the seeds for people to be kind and caring back for a future birth, a life of experiencing abundance and kindness. I'd want to be generous because it feels terrific to share with others and also it would be the seeds for good karma if there were future lives to receive many bountiful things. And I'd want to pay attention and be wakeful so that I could learn what there was to learn here. And that would be the seeds or the cause for the awakening, the arising of wisdom in the future. The Buddha said, just so, my friend. Now suppose that there's only one life. Suppose this is it. How would you want to live then if I told you that's the answer? And the man said, well, I'd want to be very kind if this is it. And you only get to see these people once, you might as well really share your heart with them. feels wonderful. And I'd certainly want to be generous since you can't take it with you. So I would enjoy the spirit of generosity and giving. And I'd want to really pay attention, be mindful and present, because if this is the only dance, I'd want to really experience it fully. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend, and wouldn't answer him about what happens when you die. Because that's just an idea. Does anybody here know? <coughs> we'll tell you about it at the end of the retreat. <laughs> <laughs> to enter into the unknown is really to enter into the moment because it's all here already. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thoughts and feelings, that's here. It was here a little while ago, it'll be here in a little while from now. That's all that there is. But we discover in trying to let go, and trying to open to this mystery, and trying to be free that we become afraid, or confused, or entangled, or knotted. To do this work of opening or letting go, it doesn't require much of your mind. It's not really mental work, other than, you know, the thought machine keeps cranking out new thoughts for you, but it won't solve anything. It's not the work of the mind. It's much more the work of the body and the heart, the guts, your actual life experience. It's a work of opening. 
So you sit. And you begin to feel, as you try to come into the moment or open, the barriers that keep you, us, from being here. The, the kinds of armor in the body, the contractions, the releases of energy, and the ways that we hold, all the way down to a cellular level. And the contractions of the heart, the, the griefs, the, the pains that we haven't wanted to feel. And the various strategies of the personality, compulsion, busyness, obsession about our health or our money or our work, planning, remembering, swept along by different moods and states, or our views, attachment to all kinds of opinions about how things should be. And what we're asked to do is a kind of work of the heart and body. is just to sit and feel it and touch it and open to it and experience its evanescence, its endless, ceaseless movement and change, its dance, to make enough space to allow for whatever is actually here, rather than what we would like. To come to peace means that we have to face the first noble truth of suffering. Anybody not seen it around here yet in this retreat? I know it's been around, lurking in this hall. We have to face disappointment, disillusionment, pain, loneliness, all kinds of things. In some way, disappointment is the greatest of spiritual teachers. People come to me recently, and I gave a talk in my Monday night class a few weeks ago on disappointment. Someone came who was part of the New York, a, a big New York psychiatric institution and community of people who this, this person had given really a lot of their life to and then learned recently that, as in many institutions, there was more corruption and that uh, there was of much less integrity. Uh, a lot of terrible things they found out, and they were incredibly disappointed. To come to terms with disappointment and disillusionment. I think that's partly what makes the Vietnam War Memorial so powerful, because it's a place, instead of thinking about it, where you go and you read the wall and their 50-some thousand names, and you really just face it. And people go there, and they look at it, and they weep, and they see what's true. This book, if anyone has not seen it, I read from at various retreats, called The Wall, is an extraordinary collection of notes and letters left there by people. One very short one, mostly when I read this book I cry, but I'll keep it to a sentence or two today. Dearest Eddie Lynn, 
I'd give anything to have you shell just one more pecan for me on Grandma's porch. All my love, your cousin Annie. One sentence. But it really says a lot. Disappointments because the world isn't the way we wish it to be. There was a woman who came to a retreat on the East Coast with me in this past year, and her two-year-old son had died of, of crib death. Sid just went to sleep one night and the next morning didn't wake up. And her business failed also in the same six-month period. And she was sitting there saying mantras and with crystals piled all around her and pictures of gurus and teachers. She was throwing everything in the spiritual book at this pain, which was fine. I mean, I didn't say you shouldn't do that. And when it's that hard, you just do what you do. But she sat for some days, and finally she started to feel really what she had to feel, to really let her heart crack open with that much sorrow and pain. But it's not just her. It's the wars of the world and the hungry and homeless people. And it's the disappointments in our lives, in our love relationships or in our ex-marriages or with teachers that we've had. Disappointment is endless. Even the East Germans, who the wall came down in Berlin and they moved, they went into West Berlin and West Germany. And then after a few days, there was this whole movement of some thousands of them who wanted to go back. Because housing was really, there was, was um, hard to find housing and uh, the culture was moving so fast, they weren't used to that. And there wasn't much of a sense of community. They were rich in West Germany, but they didn't talk to one another anymore. And they realized they didn't want that. It's George Bernard Shaw. Remember, he said there are two great disappointments in life. Not getting what you want and getting it. <laughs> so our practice becomes this constant comparison of what we could imagine the world to be, what we want and hope and imagine, and the world as it is, what is actually here. Now, as we sit, there still remains in this some hope that this isn't true. <laughs> that the three characteristics aren't really the three characteristics. <laughs> that the Buddha somehow made a mistake. And it's not impermanent. You know, that there isn't loss and change, ceaseless, and birth and death and death and birth and, and endless change. That impermanence isn't true, that dukkha isn't true, that it doesn't just alternate pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain and day and night and light and light and dark and sweet and sour and hot and cold. 
and that anatta isn't true, that we can possess something, that it's not really selfless, that it's not just form and shapes and sounds and space. And so we're not at peace because we haven't come to terms with what's right here in front of us. Because of our ideals, our hopes, our expectations, and the identity that we create out of that, which is a small personal identity that we hold on to and hope we can preserve as if it were really worth preserving. This body, these views, my personal history. And so we can't come to rest because we're at war with what's actually here. read you a poem. It's a meditation poem called Duck Meditation. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf as he cuddles in the swells. There's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he is part of it. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you. (laughs) But he realizes it somewhere, and what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. Duck meditation. (laughs) He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. How about you? (laughs) It is impermanent. You will die. Everything you know will change. Suffering is inevitable. There is pain as there is pleasure. There is joy and love and pain and loss and sorrow. And none of it can be possessed. It's all true. Now what if we took another view of all of this? Instead of struggling and trying to make it somehow other than it is with our small minds. The phrase that Chogyam Trumpa uses, he wrote a whole book, the title of which was Dharmas Without Blame. It's a wonderful phrase. To receive the world as it is, all of the dharmas, the events of the world, without any blame. What if we saw it instead of that it's supposed to be the way we'd like it to be, that it's the way that it is? And maybe it's even supposed to be the way that it is. Instead of seeing it as disappointments and difficulties, 
we saw that life was simply a place for our heart to grow open and our being to become free. You know the book from Raymond Moody called Life After Life? Most of you probably know it, all the near-death experiences. And people die, or at least they leave their bodies on the operating table. They have these near-death experiences. And then they write, I knew I was dying, and there was nothing I could do about it. No one could hear me. I left my body because I could see my own body lying there on the operating table. All this made me feel very bad at first, but then this bright light came. It seemed that it was a little dim at first, but then there was this huge beam, tremendous amount of light, and it gave off this warmth, and I started feeling completely differently. Everything was bathed in light, yet it didn't prevent me from seeing the doctors, the nurses, the operating room. When the light came, I wasn't at first sure what was happening, but then it asked, it kind of asked a question, is it worth it? And what it meant was, did the kind of life I'd been leading up to that point seem worthwhile to me, knowing then what I knew as I was dying? Imagine if you saw it from that perspective. Not so much to judge it, but to ask, what's the lesson? What could we open to? What greatness could we find? of our being or our heart. Maybe the lesson is the perfection of patience or the perfection of love or truth. Maybe the lesson is infinite forgiveness or steadfastness or serenity. What is your lesson? Instead of trying to make it some imaginary way, what if we took all this world of joys and sorrows and asked, what is its lesson for us? There's a very powerful prayer written by a Tibetan Lama in the 18th century, Jamgan Kongtrul, called Crying to the Gurus from Afar. And it's a kind of longing of a meditation student. It goes through many many different paragraphs where he says, although I have obtained a human and well-favored well and wonderful human birth, I tend to waste it on frivolous things. There is no one on earth who will not die, and yet, like an idiot, I imagine I will live for a long time. My faults are large, but I conceal them. Other faults might, others' faults might be as minute as sesame seed, but I proclaim and condemn them. He goes on, Just a little praise or blame makes me sad or happy. A mere harsh word causes me to lose my armor of patience. Even when I see people in difficulty, compassion is slow to arise. My outer appearance is that of a Dharma practitioner, but inside my mind is caught in so many other things. Please, O oh Guru, help me. And he goes through then this long prayer, which ends, Grant your blessings so that I give birth to deep sadness, which is the sadness of not being authentic, of running away for so long from just what's here. Grant your blessings so that my worthless schemes be curtailed. All your ideals. 
Grant your blessings so I take to heart the certainty of death. Grant your blessings so the conviction of karma arises in me. Grant your blessings so that I am able to open myself in practice. Grant your blessings so that unfortunate circumstances are brought to my path. How do you like that one? So that I have the right stuff to awaken from. Grant your blessings that insight is awakened in my heart, that I glimpse the true state of the world, that I uproot confusion, that I find liberation. A whole long, wonderful poem. It's a very different way of seeing our disappointments and difficulties. In this one, you ask for them, please send me enough of them so that true sorrow arises and out of that true joy. What is the lesson for you? It's really very simple. In wandering around the monastery with Ajahn Chah, the last years of his active teaching, as I've said in this story before, he would come up to people, and if they were having a hard time, kind of look at them, peer at them a little bit, and say, are you suffering today? <laughs> and if they said no, he'd say, fine, you know, enjoy the day. And if they'd say yes, he'd go, hmm, must be very attached. And then he would walk on. Very, very simple interaction. It's that simple to be with what is actually here and open to it. This wonderful book, this sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, um, 25 volumes of verses from the Mahayana, and it describes all the different tens of thousands of universes one could imagine existing in the world and which may exist. Cloud worlds and flower bank worlds, which is its name, and um, worlds made of stone and universes made of fire and universes made of beautiful smells and scents. Tens of thousands of millions of universes. And in each one, a Buddha appears. And they all have these names, the Buddha of resplendent light and the Buddha of the infinite heart of sweetness and the Buddha of uh, fragrant words and on and on. There's a, a chapter in there of just a thousand names of Buddhists that appear in all these worlds. And the Buddhas in each of these worlds teach the same thing. They teach the Four Noble Truths. They teach that there is sorrow and suffering and pain caused by our attachment and grasping. And that there is liberation and freedom and joy that comes when we take that seat in the center of all things and open to it as it is. So this retreat, as you sit and as you walk and as you eat and come to the talks, it's an opening layer after layer. And peace is the cessation of your struggle. It's putting down the burden. It's letting things be as they actually are. And there's the the outer layers of armor and, and struggle and plans and expectations. Letting that be. And then there's the deeper, long-held sadness and loneliness and spiritual ambitions and ideals. 
letting those be, not fighting with those either. And then there's the layers where you do start to get quiet, and then, oh, wait, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. And the habit of keeping oneself going, of contracting, shows itself. So you sit and you open, and then another layer says, ah, this too to let go of. It's a very deep process of unfolding, of opening, of unknotting, of coming into a direct and intimate relationship with who we actually are and who we're not, which turn out to be the same thing. It requires a lot of forgiveness to do this practice. Not much ideals, but a lot of forgiveness, a lot of courage, and a lot of love. That's why we do so much metta at the retreat, so we can learn to let go, learn to love. Of course it's hard. Gandhi said, a coward is incapable of exhibiting love. Love is the prerogative of the brave. And just to sit and really open is a brave thing to do. So maybe we can stop and listen to our hearts, to the wind outside, to one another, to the changing pattern of this mysterious life that comes moment after moment out of nothing and disappears, as did the first week of this retreat, disappeared into nothing. Gone. Amazing. And live with less grasping and more appreciation and caring and find freedom and peace in the midst of every changing circumstance. Opening, opening moment after moment after moment. I end with another poem following the duck meditation poem. This is a poem called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. It's a good thing, huh? You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to you, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, wondrous, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. The world calls to you, announcing your place in the family of things.
So it's not about getting or owning or having or making or creating, but of opening, of letting go, letting be. It's a good thing we have two weeks because you only just get warmed up after the first one. We have a few minutes for questions if someone would like. I told the people when I gave my talk Monday night to the sitting group in Fairfax that you were all here sitting and how you were doing. And they were pleased to hear. I said a whole bunch of us are sitting over there and facing all these different things. And they're doing it. Which means, of course, that you haven't left yet, right? (laughs) And they got really inspired. They were really happy for you. Sit and pay attention carefully. Be here. Walk and pay attention. Eat and pay attention. Make it really continuous, like a dance. And over and over you'll see the contraction. This is too hard. This is too painful. This is too scary. Or this isn't supposed to be happening. This isn't what I planned. You'll see those moments of contraction. Simply note them. Oh, another one contracting. A new lesson contracting. Fear disappointment, whatever it happens to be, simply note that, be with that as it arises and passes like a wave, and then be in the next moment, until you can open and one moment after another really hear. Terrific stuff. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.